We started last week a series that I entitled On Religion, Examining Religion's Birth, Evolution, and Death. And what I always want to say at the beginning of this series is that people use different words to mean different things. Do you know that? That words can sometimes mean multiple things and different people mean multiple things. For example, the word bark in the English language. It can mean, of course, the sound that a dog makes, but it can also be the armor of a tree. Or trunk can be the trunk of an elephant, or it could also be the trunk of a tree. And so when people use the word religion, oftentimes they mean different things. It can be used in a positive sense. If someone were to say, I'm a really religious person, or I had a religious experience, they would probably just mean that they had a legitimate uh, faith experience. Right, uh, But there's also this negative use of the word religion, and I would say that almost exclusively that's how the Bible uses the word religion. Uh, Jesus doesn't use the word religion. He uses faith, which is a relational term. And almost always when you see the word religion in the Bible, it's actually a negative thing. So we would say it's in the pejorative sense. It's the negative side, and that's what we're talking about in this series, but we don't want to argue about words. And last week we talked about how religion comes from this impulse that we have to believe that God... God is far away from us. You know, we are made, this is amazing, you and I are made in the image of God. In fact, in all of creation, there's only one creature that is made in the image of God, and that's humankind. And so God already had pets, right? But he wanted, he, wanted, he already had a petting zoo, but what he wanted was creation that he could interact with and be in a loving relationship with mutual love. And so he built us in God's image. We're not gods, but we are God-like in that we are made in God's image so that we could have relationship with him. And part of what that means as people who are made in God's image is that we are made relational. We're relational beings just like God is. And in particular, not just relationship with anybody, but in particular, relationship with God is something that is deeply fundamental to who we are and how we see the world. And that's a great strength, but it's also a tremendous weakness if someone were to come to exploit that. So be that maybe perhaps a talking snake or a religious institution or some sort of religious system that would come and convince you that God's actually not that close. He's far away, but you have to do something in order to bridge that gap with God. And that's kind of like that separation anxiety that comes from feeling like God is far away is the birth of religion. And so we would say that religion actually doesn't help anything in, in life, but in particular, it doesn't help this. We, we talked last week how, how this religion, religious impulse is the, is the fertilizer in which the original sin grows, the, the sense that God's far away and we have to do something to get close to him. And what's really... What's really I don't know, damaging about this kind of spirituality is it looks like it looks like genuine faith to the outside, right? So from the outside in, someone who, there may be two people in the sanctuary and they're doing the exact same thing. They've come to church and they're reading their Bible and they're praying, but the motivation can be totally different on the inside of those two people. One person could be doing that just because out of a celebration because God is so good and so faithful and he's done, done it all. And so I'm just doing this because I love him. The person right next to him could be doing the exact same thing but they could be doing it out of this sense of fear and dread that they have to do something to try to get close uh, to God. And so that's the, the birth of 
religion that we see in the garden, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. Uh, By the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, we see the evolution of religion. We see it evolve, and we see it become less personal and more systematized. So uh, Genesis 4, just a brief uh, overview, is this, you probably know this, is that, that what we see is, is God, he has, he has breathed in to, he has breathed into us. Um, but Adam and Eve, they've, they've eaten from the wrong tree and now they are exited from the garden. Are you guys familiar with this? They're, they're, God sees that they've eaten from the tree, so they're exited out. This actually isn't an act of judgment at all. This is, this is in this particular case, this is actually an act of mercy. He doesn't want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of uh, the, the tree of life and live forever. And so he exits them out of the garden, and it's actually an act of mercy and grace an opportunity for them to re-enter and to live life once again in perfection in the life to come that would not have been afforded to them had they eaten from the tree of life. And so that was the shape that grace tends to take in that particular situation. And then something amazing happens once they're out of the garden is that beings that were made in the image of God create more beings made in the image of God. They begin to reproduce. Have you ever thought what an amazing thing that is? Right, that, that you being someone who's made in the image of God can reach into nothingness and pull out another human being that's made in the image of God. So Adam and Eve, they make, does anybody know, first one? Cain, right? Their son, Cain. And so Cain is a huge deal. And so we see in Genesis chapter four, we enter the story with life happening. Verse one, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. I love that verse. With the help of the Lord, I've brought forth. I could just picture Adam saying, um, hello. I, did I have nothing to do with it? She says, with me and the Lord, we brought forth a man. And also, I so love that she doesn't recognize him as a baby. He's just like, I brought forth a man. He's like a little man. But I don't know if you can imagine, this is the first natural birth that has ever happened. Can you imagine their surprise? Like, you know, there's labor pains and then there's a little man at the edge of the bed. So it's amazing. I've brought forth a man. And if you can just appreciate the incredible promise that is is put onto Cain right off the bat as the first offspring. Because remember remember the promise that God gives to Adam and Eve in the previous chapter. He says this. Let's go back to Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is what uh, theologians call the proto-evangelium. It's a great word. I love any word that ends in jellium. Means the, means the first gospel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. It happens right after the fall. And of course, we understand this, the crush your head and strike his heel, that what this is talking about is Jesus, that Jesus will come and ultimately be victorious over the devil, right? We understand that. But Adam and Eve, I mean, they hear this. 
they hear that your offspring is going to come and defeat that nasty serpent. And there's nothing in the prophecy that says, well, it's going to be your offsprings, 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 offspring, you know, 4,000 years later, ultimately pointing uh, to Jesus. So I think it's completely reasonable if you talk to someone about their offspring, what do they think? Their kids, right? If I was to tell you, you are going to have beautiful offspring. Let's say you don't have kids and I say that you're not probably thinking about someone who's going to come around 4,000 years later from your bloodline, are you? You're thinking, my offspring. And so this is the promise that, that Adam and Eve have, is that my offspring is going to come and defeat the devil. And so there's this, there's this huge pressure. The birth of Cain is this really big deal. Uh, next, after Cain, comes Abel. And what I love about Abel and his birth is just this one tiny little mention Look at this, uh, verse two. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. That's it. I love that. I've brought forth a man, and then uh, his brother also. Yeah, but, but imagine these kids that, that have grown up, you know, uh, Adam and Eve are their parents, and they are outside the garden, right, working the field, and it's not nearly as great as what it was in the garden. Imagine these conversations that they must have had, like, mom and dad, why are we not in the garden, why are we out here working the land? And I can imagine, it's like, well, son, long story. The gist of it is there was a talking snake and there was an apple and it was God's apple. And we weren't supposed to eat that apple, but we did because the snake tricked us. And then God kicked us out because we ate his apple, right? And, and so, so for me, I, I think about that and I think that Cain has, oh, but, oh, that's why we're not there. But here's what's good news, says, says Adam and Eve. But God said that our offspring is going to come and make it right. And so imagine this pressure, this huge calling that's placed on Cain, this purpose. And this is one of the reasons it kind of explains why he ends up going berserk when his sacrifice is accepted and his brother is, is because there's this sense of calling that he's going to make everything right. Verse two, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. It's the two brothers. It's not a judgment here. It's just different roles, but they're both equally honorable. Verse three, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So here, this word, this word offering, it's just the standard word in the Bible for a religious practice. So here's what you need to pay attention to, that this right here in verse three, this is the first ever religious sacrifice in the history of the world. You know, bringing something to God, like this is the first time that happens. And what does he bring? Well, it uses this word fruit. And I think it uses it in particular on purpose. It's the same Hebrew word as the previous chapter when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they shouldn't. So when I see this, I think, I, I imagine Cable, uh, Cain, say, Cable, Cain saying, I'm going to make this right. right? I'm going to give God back his fruit. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to fix this. Verse 4, and Abel, this is his brother, also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. See, it's just offerings that are respective to their jobs. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain, the first guy, and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry and his face was downcast. So theologians have long struggled as to why he is accepted 
uh, Abel's offering and didn't accept Cain's, right? But I think that question might actually be backwards. A better question might be this, well, why did he accept Abel's at all? Because something that, that, is, that is shockingly absent in this story up to this point is this. God never asked for any of this, right? Do you see God saying, please bring, me, bring unto me a sacrifice? He doesn't say any of that. It's just this religious impulse that we have that we, we desire to bring something to God, something that God never asks for. Um, and so it's my opinion, if you want it, this is, this is speculation on my part, but if you ask me my opinion on why he accepted Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's, is that, is that Cain's offering was trying to pay back and fix something that was broken. Whereas Abel was just trying to be nice. He's just Here's something, because I love you. Here, versus Cain, the brother, he's trying to give God back his fruit. But just notice, it's a, it's a simple point, but notice that God doesn't need this and God doesn't ask for this. There's nothing about God that says, please bring this, but he doesn't shut it down. And notice that, that it's not some epic rebuke, right? It's not some huge, like, I can't believe you would bring this offering and not that offering. It's, nothing, it's, just, it's just, I don't need that. And then verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, you might be thinking, okay, well, what is he gonna say to Cain after he rejects his offering? He might say, fruit, right? Give me a break. I only want blood, right? If, if I'm gonna forgive anybody, it's, there's gotta be blood. There's gotta be lots of suffering and blood. That's not what he says. Look, in fact, this is the closest we get to an explanation from God as to why he doesn't need Cain's offering. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Verse seven, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? In, in, in other words, hey, do, just do what's right. That's all I'm wanting here. This, all this sacrifice stuff that you're doing here isn't actually ne- necessary. And so you can see Cain here is, his purpose is crumbling away because he was the one who was going to bridge the gap for his family by offering God back his fruit. And at this point, he gets incredibly jealous over his brother. He invites his brother into the field uh, and he murders him. He goes absolutely nuts uh, over this, of, of God not wanting his sacrifice. And so what I want you to pay attention to or get here really early on is that people think when they, when they read the Bible, they think that God invented the idea of sacrifice. But that's actually not true. Uh, in fact, if, I would say it like this. If, if you jump into the middle of something, it's almost definite that you're going to misunderstand it. So let's take, for example, movies. My wife is a big movie fan. I'm a medium movie fan. So sometimes we watch movies together. Other times we watch movies or she watches a movie and I'm doing something else, probably playing a video game or something. Well, last night she had started a movie and so she was about halfway done with the movie. I was studying, typing up my little notes and little slides. I decided it was time for a break, and so I go and I watch the second half of the movie with Jordan. And so I'm sure you can imagine what happens is I don't know what's going on in the movie. And so we're sitting there, and she's watching, and I say, so who is that again? And so she pauses the movie, and she says, that's his brother. We met him earlier on in the movie. Oh, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. She plays the movie, and then I'm like, so what does he mean by that? Pauses. 
That's referring back to the incident that happened at the beginning of the movie that, you, you know, I was just totally lost. You ever experienced that? Trying to watch the second half of a movie, you will almost certainly misunderstand the movie. And that's how it is, I would say, when it comes to this stuff of sacrifice. If you were to jump right into the middle of it, let's say Leviticus, you would think God is all about sacrifice. But is that true? Is it true that God is the one who's all about sacrifice? sacrifice. Uh, because we just assume that he, we assume that it was God's idea because he goes with it. Theologians would call this, and some of this is well-traveled territory for some of you. Others, this is a new phrase. It's the principle of accommodation. This is what a theologian would say. Basically, the idea here is that God, God um, and mankind have difference different opinions, but we are super insistent on it going our way. And so God says, I don't, I don't think that's right. And we say, you better believe it is. And God says, okay, fine. And he gets on board with it and he even blesses it and he uses it. You can say it like this. God accommodates where we're at because he's committed to working things out together. When we stubbornly choose a course, God will often meet us where we're at, even though it's not his heart. He does this to lead, the, lead us out of our blindness. And you might be thinking, that's real weird, David. You were cool up until now, and then you just went weird. Well, I didn't make it up. This is throughout the Bible. All types of accommodations God offers humanity because of the things that not he wants, but things that we want. Here's three quick examples. Number one is kings. If you were, if you were to jump into the middle of the story, you might think God is all about kings. He loves kings. Kingship's very important to God. But what if I told you that at the beginning, when kingship was instituted, kingship was personal rejection of God? See, there was a time when, when the Israelites, God's people, were being led by the prophets. These were God's spokespeople. It was, it was God's way of leading them directly. And then one day, Samuel comes to God. He's the prophet. And he tells God, he says, the people want a king. The people want a king like, like the pagan nations. Um, and, he, and he says, I, I don't know why, but, but God, I feel like by them wanting a king, I feel like they're rejecting me. And God says to Samuel, no, them wanting a king isn't them rejecting you. Them wanting a king is rejecting me. And what's the very next thing that God says? He says this, let's get him a king. He says, I'll even point out who it should be. And so he goes and he appoints this man, Saul, right? He says, this will be, be Israel's first king. It'll be, it'll be Saul. And then after a little bit of time passes, and then it's, uh, he says, okay, here's the second king. It's David. Saul didn't really work out, that jerk. But David's going to be some, be- not a lot better, but some better. Uh, but you jump right into the middle and you think that God is all about kings. But it wasn't God's idea to have kings. It was actually man's and God gets on board. And he actually gets really into it. He, in fact, he, he uses kingship as a way to explain himself. He says that he is the king of kings, right, and the Lord of lords. And then even when they're talking about Jesus, he says this, that, that this will be a man who's a son of David, King David, right? And so this will be, they're talking about how Jesus will be from a kingly bloodline, and so, so, but if you jump into the middle, you would think that God's all about kings, but that's not necessarily true. Number two is this, the temple. Did you know that God didn't originally want the temple? He wanted, he wanted a tent. He liked the tent. Does anybody know the tent's name? 
the tabernacle, right? So he had really specific parameters for how they built the, the, the tabernacle, you know, dimensions and all of that. So whose idea was it to build God a temple? David. King David, ironically enough. Uh, he says, you know what, God? I live in a palace, and all the other kings live in a palace. You live in a smelly tent, He says, enough of that. I'm going to build you a huge house in which you can live. And God says, yeah, I really prefer the tent. I'm more of an outdoorsy deity. I feel more comfortable outside. uh, It's great symbolism, you know. It's portable. It, It symbolizes I'll be with you wherever you go. I'm really just happy with the tent. And David said, no, 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 no. We're building you a temple, and it is going to be glorious. So God says, okay, fine, we'll do that. I'll even give you the instructions for how you're to build it. But while we're on it, you're actually not going to build it. You're going to die, but your son will build it. And then once the temple's finally built, God shows up and he blesses it and he uses it and he gets really into it. And in fact, he, he, uses, he uses the temple to talk about the church right? He, he says, of course, and you know that church is not technically a building, right? That when we say church, we're talking about the people. You and I, we could move buildings and we would still be the church. And you could, you could take us out of this and this would cease to be the church. It's technically what we call a church, but it's the people, not the place. And so he uses, uh, Jesus uses the temple to describe you and me, the church. He says this, that we as people are the temples of the Holy Spirit. But if you were to start in the middle, you'd think God's all about temples. Yeah, not that much, right? It was more our idea and God comes and accommodates us where we're at. So maybe thinking, okay, well, God's not about, uh, God's not maybe about kings that much, and maybe he's not that much about the temple, but he's, he's definitely about animal sacrifice, right? Well, if you, if you were to jump into the middle of the story, right, Leviticus, you would think, man, God is drunk on blood, right? If the only reason I'm able to talk to any of you people is if something is bleeding and suffering, then we'll talk about it. Or others of you, you might think like, well, he had no choice, right? That's just, that was just the way the world works. I'm going to make a real basic point here that I think is important, is that God is not subject to any laws outside of himself. You follow me there? Because if that were true, then those laws would be God. He's not saying like, God, I wish I could. I can't because the, look, that's not the way the world works. That, that's not true for God. He creates the universe. And so, so what's amazing is that God is actually capable of forgiveness. Did you know that? Capable. He's capable of forgiveness. You are made in God's image, you and me, and you're capable of just forgiving someone. And God is also capable of for just forgiving people. Um, and so there's, there's this really weird way, I think, of understanding God, if you would allow me to say, I think I have a minute, that there's, there's all of these different metaphors that we use to understand what happens through Jesus and because of Jesus. And they can all be helpful, but they can all, if, you, if used over, overly, um, oh, if they're overemphasized, then they can actually take you down a bad way. And so understanding that Jesus was payment for ours, that's beautiful, but you also, with, that's in the text, also within the text is that God is capable of forgiving people. He's capable of forgiving people. You are made in the image of God, uh, and you're capable of forgiving just like he is. 
So the question is animal sacrifice, right? Was this something that God wanted and was this something that God needed? We're going to go to the book of Isaiah and I'm just going to warn you, these verses are absolutely brutal. They're some of my favorites in the entire Old Testament. This honestly might be some of my favorite scripture in the Old Testament. I think it's probably my favorite words of God in the Old Testament. We're going to go to the first chapter of Isaiah and then the last chapter of Isaiah. It's fascinating. So keep in mind here in the first chapter is that God is going, going along with us with this sacrificial thing, but he reminds us that this is not his heart and that someday he's going to bring about change, of course, in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to this. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Isn't that amazing? When you come to appear before me, check this out. Who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Verse 14, your new moon feast, whose feast? Yours, right? Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Wow. Is that not strong language when God is talking about the fact that he never wanted the whole animal sacrifice thing? Then let's jump to the last chapter, Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 1. I'll give you a second. It says this. This is God again speaking. Heaven is my throne. Oh, consider the temple. Remember how we're going to build a building where God can live? Remember that's the, that's the great plan that we have? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is this house you will build for me? You're going to build me a house? Where is that house? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. And then he says, okay, so if we're not worried about that, look, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. And then listen to this verse three. This is the best verse of the morning. And it's big, yeah. But whoever sacrifices a bull, listen to this, whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Just disgusting imagery. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. I'm gonna read that last verse, verse three, one more time. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. Wow. Few more verses. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 40. Uh, this is David. And he says this 
Verse six, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. What? What? Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. He's saying, wow, I get it. Wow, I understand. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Wow. Isn't that this big statement? Aren't you thinking like, David, have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Right? Because there is a whole lot about sacrifice uh, there. Micah chapter 6 and verse 7. Again, we're talking about sacrifice. Look at, what, look at what the prophet says. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? He's saying, how far are you going to take this sacrifice thing? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Listen to this. And what does the Lord require of you? Just to act justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Sounds a lot like Cain, doesn't it? What God says to Cain, hey, just live right. All these sacrifices that you are offering me is not something I want. Just live right. Just a few more uh, verses, and then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. By calling this, so this is Jesus, right? By calling this covenant new, he, Jesus, has made the first one, obsolete. That was the old way of doing it. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. See, this is Jesus coming to say, enough of this. That what I'm going to bring through Jesus is a new covenant, and it's one that I have custom designed, right? This is, the new covenant is finally the way that I want to work. And Jesus, in fact, when he comes and he's at the Last Supper, you know what he says? This is the new covenant my blood. Isn't that amazing? My blood. See, he speaks their language, sacrifice, right? This is the new covenant, my blood. He's saying this, who, who, who do you think can top that, right? The blood of God. I'm, I'm coming here to offer the blood of God. Is there anything that you have to add to that? Of course not. So it's the one sacrifice once and for all so that he can come and say enough of this religious impulse. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, this is uh, Jesus, and he's talking to some of these religious leaders. So the religious leaders, they love this idea of the gap, right? The gap between God and man. And look at what he says to them. This is Jesus, but go and learn what this means. It's the only time he uses that phrase. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 here, which says this, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Isn't that an amazing idea? And, and, and there's a lot of questions that may be bubbling up on the inside of you. And just just know this, that next week, Jesus is going to come in and he changes absolutely everything. It's hysterical how Jesus comes to break down uh, religion. But this is just an important concept that if you, can, if you can look at some of the things that you see just in the Old Testament in general, it, I can't be the only one who struggles with some of that stuff, to at least, at least have the understanding of this. I see all that's happening there and I know that that's not God's heart. For some of you, that can like set you free. That can be the thing that you need in order to learn to trust God again. 
the fact that the systems that we built and we insist upon, God goes with us, but it's never his heart. And again, in closing, I want to say what I said last week, which was this. Everything we do in the Christian life, we do for celebration, not salvation. Everything. And so religion is something that God has tolerated for a time, but it was never his heart. And then he, he commits to sending Jesus, who once and for all will show us a new way and free us from the old way of religion. And in the end, all God wants from you It's not for you to bridge the gap. It's just for you to come to him and learn to say thank you. Just say thank you. That that it wasn't because of me bridging any sort of gap. It was you coming to me. And I say thank you. My closing statement. Religion is something that for a season God has tolerated. Because of his love for us, God relates to us on our terms. He tolerates religious practice that is not his heart. This is the evolution of religion, relating to God using systems that he never wanted, but we insisted on anyway. But with Jesus, God finally comes down in person to say enough. Enough of your absurd record-keeping and penance-paying. I never asked for it. I don't need it, and I don't want it. Just do what's right. Live a life of gratitude towards me and a life of love towards others. That's what I want. So just know today that wherever you're at, that you, you are off the hook in terms of bearing the weight of you making it right with God. That's even some language that we as pastors use. Some of you guys need to get right with God. It's not, it's not the best because, because he's the one who has done all the work. He's done all the heavy lifting. And all he requires of us is just simply that we say thank you. And we live a life thankful towards him and a life of love towards other people.